Hello, everyone, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and I am so excited you are listening today. Before we get started today, you know I have to ask you to please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And for my Apple users, write a review. This is the only way that new listeners can find the podcast is through these ratings and reviews. So I super appreciate it. And let's chat. You can find me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. So a couple of disclaimers on today. I am a little allergied up, so hopefully that doesn't sound too bad as you guys are listening Um, And I'm also doing something a little different on my end. Not sure if you guys will notice at all or not, but typically when I write a script, I really write it like down to the word of what I'm going to say. So this week, I just didn't want to. (laughs) So this week, I'm working off of some main bullet points. Um, So who knows? You guys might like the informal approach more. You might think it's long and rambling, but uh, we'll uh, see how today goes. So to start today's episode, I want to paint a scenario for you. Put yourself here. You just drove to another state and spent some time with your relatives. You're feeling energized from seeing your family, but you're definitely ready to get home and get back to your normal day-to-day. Halfway along your drive, you stop, you treat yourself for dinner. Then just before you get home, you realize you need to stop and fill up on gas. It's a late night in the Great Plains, so it's quiet. Only a couple of tourists are also at the station refueling. The drive has been long, and you're so glad you're only about 20 minutes away from home. You finish fueling up, and you get back on the road towards home. But you never make it there. That is exactly what happened to father, teacher, and friend Randy Wilson. On June 14th, 2010, two men were driving down a Kiowa country road in eastern Colorado when they saw a white sedan pulled over to the side of the road at the intersection of Kiowa Bennett Road and County Line Road. Not far from the sedan, someone was laying in the nearby field. This someone, who turned out to be deceased, was Randy Wilson. Randy had a bag over his head, his hands were tied together, and there was a belt wrapped around his neck. He was face up in the grass, and his hands were tied behind his back. Upon investigation, it was found that Randy's cause of death was asphyxiation. Randy was born in Utah, but he was raised mainly in Bozeman, Montana. After getting a bachelor's in science from Montana State University. He attended Stewart University located in Georgia. There he earned a master's degree in secondary education. He married his wife Linda in 1984 and the two had five sons together. Randy and his large family moved to Kiowa, Colorado in 2000. But shortly after the move, the marriage started to crumble. 
And by 2002, the couple was divorced and Linda had moved out of state. Randy did not date or remarry after the divorce. Randy was a popular teacher in the small town of Kiowa. Kiowa's school is K through 12, and Randy taught many subjects there, ranging from math and science to computers and consumer science. Randy was really devoted to his students, often coming in early or leaving late or working weekends to spend extra time studying with them. Randy was a role model and a real father figure for many kids at his school and just an overall rock in the community. According to Associated Press's article for the Seattle Times, the superintendent at Randy School District said that Randy, quote, was a great teacher, great father, and had a dry sense of humor, unquote. Randy's youngest son graduated from the same school he taught at just a month before his murder. In addition, two of his other sons had also let him know that they were both expecting children. The two would be his second and third grandchildren. Randy was killed when he was only 53 years old. The death of the father figure at Kiowa School had a huge impact on its students. It was a struggle for both staff and students to fill his shoes. To this day, there's still very little we know publicly about the investigation into Randy's murder. Randy had been driving home from Montana. He had stopped in Cheyenne, Wyoming for dinner, and then again in Bennett for gas. He stopped at the gas station at about 10.45 p.m., and now Bennett and Kiowa border each other. So he was only about 20 minutes away from home. At one point, investigators reached out to the public to help locate two people who would have potentially run into him at the gas station. The two people they were looking for were Krista Coppage and Steven Nicholson, who were on their way to Aspen. Krista did not have a criminal record, but the police went public as they were just having a really hard time locating her. Not surprisingly, reporters found Krista in California pretty much immediately. Krista reached out and told authorities she didn't even recall seeing Randy that night. So I'm assuming that this information was most likely tracked down by receipts at the gas station. I haven't ever heard anything about surveillance there, so I'm just assuming that they pulled receipts for around that time. And because so many people often use credit cards over cash when you're just traveling normally and not doing something nefarious... (laughs) that they were able to track down her name and get a hold of her. Randy's white sedan was still parked on the side of the road near his body, and a carjack was beside the car, but all of Randy's tires were okay and they weren't flat. So this initially led people to believe that he maybe had pulled over to help somebody with their car. But the odd thing was Randy's clothes were clean, and not indicative of changing a tire, let alone at night on a dirt road. Additionally, there weren't really any signs of a fight at the side of the dirt road, which in the case that somebody else was responsible for Randy's death, it makes you wonder if there was a way for them to disable him right away and avoid some kind of struggle. Randy's wallet was missing, but his credit card has never been used. DNA was able to be collected at the scene, but from what we know up to current day, no match has ever been found. 
In August 2010, about two months after Randy's body was found, there were reports that some evidence from the scene had been sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, or the CBI, and that leads might help investigators solve the case from whatever they found from that evidence. But I've never found anywhere where word of this ever came up again. The sheriff also said in the following months that they had more than what they were telling the public. We do know that there were other objects in the area of his body, but what those were have not been released to the public. The sheriff's lieutenant said the team had followed leads into many different states, including Florida, Colorado, Oregon, and Wyoming. She had indicated that they had a very strong theory for what happened to Randy, but that proving it may be the most difficult part of the investigation. If the police had suspects, they were never made public. It was determined that Randy's body had been in the field for at least 12 hours before it was located, so this places his time of death about one and a half hours after his stop at the gas station. And this really makes you have to wonder because he was only about 20 minutes from his house when he stopped for gas. So there's a big gap in time there of, you know, did he go home and got back out for something or got delayed with somebody? But it's it poses a very interesting timeline into this case. So let me paint a little picture of what Kiowa, Colorado, where Randy was living and murdered, is like. So Kiowa is about one hour outside of Denver to the southeast. So some of the surrounding cities around Kiowa to the north and south have started to build up a little bit, but this area is still very much just the rolling Great Plains. Kiowa is home to the annual Elbert County Fair, and Main Street is just about two blocks long. The population of Kiowa is somewhere around 740 people, So this crime really, really shocked the community. You went from a place where people very much knew each other and were very comfortable and felt very safe to a place where people became suspicious of one another and it totally shifted the atmosphere of the town. People didn't want to help a stranger anymore. The Saturday after his death, Randy's funeral was held at the Kiowa School Gym where he had taught. Randy's case was really covered on every Denver channel when it first broke, and some of these even attended the funeral. Right after that, coverage of the case pretty much stopped. But for residents in Kiowa, there were many reminders of Randy. He had also worked as a carpenter during summer breaks, so a lot of residents had basement remodels he'd completed and bookshelves he had built for them. There was kind of always a piece of Randy around. As leads stopped becoming public and coverage in the media stopped, life just kind of started to go on. Coverage of the case pretty much ceased completely until police took a man into custody in December of 2017. And let me tell you, I'm about to take you on a ride here. The arrest was that of 34-year-old Daniel Pesch. At the time, Pesh had just lost his job and started to spend large amounts of money on alcohol. His confession started with a Facebook message to Sheriff Shane Heat. He had said he wanted to confess to a burglary. When police met with him, the statute of limitations had already passed for the crime of burglary. 
But investigators continued to talk to him because what piqued their interest was that the crime had happened in June 2010. And this was the same month that Randy had been murdered. Investigator Chris Dennis's interest would be piqued again on August 3rd when he received a text from Pesh that essentially told him that he killed Randy Wilson. So investigators met with Pesh again on August 9th. Pesh said he was really more concerned about someone seeing him drinking and driving, but didn't mention that he killed Randy. He basically said he'd pulled over on the side of the road, Randy wanted to help him with a flat tire, and... He was nervous about somebody seeing him drinking and driving. That was pretty much the end of the encounter. In regards to the text message he had sent, Pesh played off that it was an inside joke with a coworker, and he just sent it to the wrong person. But of course, when the coworker was questioned, they had no clue what inside joke Pesh was talking about. It was also during this meeting that authorities got DNA samples from Pesh. An interview with Pesh's wife also showed that she had no knowledge of Daniel Pesh committing this crime or being involved. She was, however, able to shed some light on his mental state at the time. He had recently suffered a concussion, but was also on a number of psychiatric medications, including Adderall, Trazodone, and Abilify. Investigator Dennis received another text from Pesh over the Thanksgiving holiday, and he was not in good spirits. His wife had just left him and taken their two children with her. He told Dennis that he wanted to do the right thing. It would be later revealed that during this time frame, Pesh was also on a 72-hour mental health watch in a hospital, and this was actually on an involuntary status. And Pesh just continued to taunt investigator Chris Dennis. He basically asked, were they going to wrap up the case or was he just going to get away with murder? I mean, at this point, the guy had been talking to investigators on and off for four months. And in a December 8th meeting with investigators, Pesh's story changed again. He said he didn't kill Randy and that a person named Alvarez that was in the car with Randy Wilson was responsible. But investigators looked into this and never found any existence of this passenger. And in the future, Pesh never brought up Alvarez again. And the string of confessions would just get longer and stranger because they started to spread all over the county. On December 13th, two letters were found at a shopping mall west of Littleton called Southwest Plaza. They confessed to Randy's murder and Pesh later admitted to writing these letters. Then, on December 15th, just about a week later, investigator Chris Dennis got another text from Pesh saying that he'd been evicted. So authorities really had to move on this case before Pesh left the area if they really thought it was him. In the process of being evicted, Pesh wrote another confession on the panes of his apartment window. The confessions even reached three counties, First, with the texts and interviews with the Jefferson County Sheriff. Denver homicide detectives were the ones to first see the window message when Pesh was getting evicted. Then, Pesh reached out to Greenwood Village Police, basically saying that Jefferson County wasn't taking him seriously enough. In a meeting with investigators on December 18, 2017, Daniel Pesh was arrested. He had attempted to flee police and had to be strapped down after throwing himself against his holding cell wall. 
He was charged with first-degree murder, but given his reaction when getting arrested, he was also charged with resisting arrest, obstructing a peace officer, and attempted escape. One of Pesh's most final stories was that he was driving down Kiowa Bennett Road and got a flat tire. It was Randy Wilson who pulled over to help him. The two got in an altercation when Randy called him out for drunk driving. In his story, Pesh hit Wilson with his car door and knocked him unconscious. Pesh then duct taped his hands together, put the belt around his neck and the bag on his head. Then he drove off. Pesh's defense worked in a preliminary trial hearing to have the case not even go to court. Turns out, Pesh's confession did not match pretty much all of the physical evidence found at the scene. Randy's autopsy showed that he at no point was ever knocked unconscious, so doesn't match with Pesh's story that he hit him with the car door. Duct tape was not used to bind Randy's hands. They had been secured with three zip ties, with a zip tie on each wrist and one connected to his belt loop behind his back, not with duct tape as Pesh had indicated. And while Pesh was detailed, he also missed an important detail about the scene. There was also duct tape on Randy's mouth underneath the bag that was over his head. Pesh's DNA was also not found at the scene, which you would expect from the transfer from these items, especially think about zip ties, how you close a zip tie. You're really running your fingers over that material and leaving a lot of DNA transfer. So none of Pesh's DNA at the scene And a logbook that Pesh kept showed that he wasn't even anywhere near that area of Colorado on the day that Randy died. He kept a log of horse rides he took that his grandfather, Norman Pesh, knew about. This log showed that Pesh was in Montrose, which is five hours away from where Randy was found. Pesh had been visiting his grandfather and grandmother, who live in Montrose. So the logs became physical proof of this in court. His grandfather had said that everyone went to bed early and they saw Pesh get up for breakfast the next morning. So it really doesn't speak to Pesh having left and made a 10-hour drive and been back in the morning for breakfast. And the prosecution's largest piece in this case was Pesh's confession, which as we see was continually changing even leading up to the trial. The defense planned to pose the option that Pesh suffered some sort of mental illness that caused him to make these number of confessions. Pesh said he had read articles about the case, and the details of his confessions really never went past what was released to the media. After 10 months of being held for arraignment, Pesh started to deny his confessions just up and down. He said he was suicidal at the time and that these confessions were really a calling out for help and that his mental state was really just a combination of drug abuse and mental illness. And Pesh has a history of false confessions. The burglaries he falsely confessed to that originally brought him into the eye of investigators took place in Chaffee County and they had also hit the papers so he also had information to go off of when he confessed to these. But when his DNA and fingerprints were compared to the burglaries, it showed that he wasn't the perpetrator or at the scenes. He also at one point implicated himself in seeing Mike Rust after his disappearance date, 
Mike had gone missing in Sawatch County, and he was a mountain biker who had been going after some burglars who got away from scenes on dirt bike. And his case was really, really publicized. So again, Pesh had information to go off of. And if you are wondering, I do plan to cover Mike Russ's case in the future. The defense also posed that Randy Wilson had staged the scene himself and that the death was actually a suicide. There was record of Randy taking out a life insurance policy about four months prior to his death. This policy, as with most, would have been void if he committed suicide. The defense explained that there was a note found in his car detailing his finances. So I will cover this theory a little bit later in my musings, but this is the only reference I could find in regards to Randy possibly having committed suicide. It is only in the defense's theories that it ever comes up. While Daniel Pesh was in jail, he was undergoing therapy and was diagnosed with adjustment disorder. This disorder basically means that how he responds to stress is just way more extreme than someone without the disorder. Like, say you might get stressed and you might yell at your spouse, he confesses to murder. (laughs) So um, extreme is really the only way you can put that. The murder charge against Pesh ended up being dropped in February 2019. He did, however, plead guilty to the attempted escape charge, which landed him probation. The requirements of the probation included a psychiatric evaluation and completion of any recommended treatment that came out of that. He also had to attend therapy, a substance abuse treatment program, and maintain a full-time job. It is unclear if all of these happened because, of course, most of these are medical records that we wouldn't have access to. But it does make me wonder if this is even possible. I mean, to hold down a full-time job and be making appointments for what is probably very continued therapy had to have been pretty difficult. And I don't really know how possible all those things are together. Needless to say, I have some inkling that it probably didn't happen. Because on May 18th, 2020, Pesh was charged with criminal mischief, harassment, and defacing property. The criminal mischief charge was even a felony. Pesh was accused of throwing rocks at the Tri-County Health Department's office on three different occasions through April 2020. His anger was in response to the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders. He'd also sent threatening Facebook messages to the group. He was so enraged at arrest that he needed sedatives because he was just so combative. But because Colorado jails were taking in so few prisoners during COVID-19, when he was released from the hospital, he didn't go to jail. Supesh picked back up with the vandalizations in May, but was arrested for the outstanding warrant from the previous arrest, which was failure to obey a lawful order and also resisting arrest. So, the arrest that police did make, really nothing came of it, because I think it's pretty clear that Daniel Pesh was not the correct perpetrator. The case has now been cold for 11 years, and to this day, there are really no further answers on what happened to Randy Wilson, why Randy Wilson, and who murdered Randy Wilson. If you have any information on this case, no matter how small please call the Elbert County Sheriff's Office at 
621-2027. One year after his death, Randy's youngest son, who graduated the month before his death, scattered Randy's ashes on Gray's Peak Trail at 14,270 feet above sea level. Randy was an avid climber of Colorado 14ers. And for those of you who don't know that phrase, that is any mountain that is over 14,000 feet above sea level. We also have a number of 13ers and, I don't know, is there a name for the 12s? If anybody knows, catch me on social media with that. A $200 scholarship called the Wilson Einstein Award is given in Randy's honor each year at his Kiowa school. And a couple years after his death, funds were also raised to build an outdoor classroom in Randy's honor. What is left of that horrible night are two crosses on Kiowa Bennett Road. One on the crossroads and one smaller cross where Randy's body was found. So let's wrap up today with a few thoughts on this case. Musing number one. So like I said, the only place that has been mentioned that Randy could have committed suicide is from the defense's theories. So you have to keep in mind in a court of law, the defense is trying to create a theory to create reasonable doubt. So being that I haven't seen this anywhere else, I don't know how much weight I put in it. I think it would potentially explain the kind of odd timing. Like I said earlier, the gas station Randy filled up at was only about 20 minutes from his house, but his time of death puts it at about an hour and a half after him being at the gas station. So on the chance that it was suicide, you could see how maybe that would be the time that somebody is working up the nerve, but I just don't know how much weight I put in that theory. I mean, if that was the case, it's a pretty brutal way to kill yourself. Um, and a lot of people take much quote unquote easier ways than that. I of course cannot definitively say if Randy was in a position that he felt that was his only way out. While it would explain that time lapse, I... I just don't really know. Um, So if you guys have thoughts on that, please let me know on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, what you think. I do find it really interesting that there was no struggle at the scene. So I do think if he was murdered, it had to have been that somebody did disable him pretty immediately, you know, maybe with like mace or a taser or something or caught him off guard to where there just wasn't really much of a scuffle. Musing number two. I do find it really interesting that they even arrested Daniel Pesh. I mean, I understand he was doing all these confessions and he's getting all these different police departments. So you have to take it at validity at some point. But I kind of feel like that is in opposition to what the sheriff's lieutenant had said, you know, not very long after Randy was found murdered, that they had a pretty solid theory. They just weren't sure if they could prove it. Kind of makes me wonder, you know, what made them so interested in Pesh. But I guess when somebody's confessing to you over and over and doing these really, like, kind of outlandish acts, you, you can't not assume that they're involved. Musing number three. So speaking of Daniel Pesh, I think he's also a cautionary tale about untreated mental disorders. While this is maybe on the spectrum of a quote-unquote lesser disorder, 
it clearly has been very destructive to Daniel Pesha's life. And like I said earlier, I found it interesting in his probation that so much therapy was required, but he also had to hold down a full-time job. And I think that really wraps up American view on mental health, that like, yes, take care of yourself, but don't stop doing all the normal things. So, you know, in a case where somebody is struggling with a disorder and very clearly not handling it well, you know, I, I think our expectation sometimes is a little too high that you can still be such a normal functioning human, but take care of yourself on the side versus the other way around. So regardless of my thoughts on this, I just hope that Daniel Pesh is doing better and managing his disorder and, you know, really getting the therapy that he needs. Musing number four. So this one's just kind of a little interesting tidbit. So not more than a mile away from where Randy's body was found is a hot spot for local teens called Third Bridge. So Third Bridge is really known for its hauntings by various spirits that have met their demise along the road there. So Randy's death has really become a part of this lore. And while you could view this as kind of disrespectful to his memory... In an odd way, it also means that his story will live on for forever. I mean, I think every state has some kind of stretch of highway or road that has this really infamous haunted reputation and the stories of the people that are supposedly there become so intertwined in the community and they just continue to be told. So while, yes, again, this could be kind of disrespectful, you know, in a small way, it's a way that Randy's story is always being told because... It did fall out of news coverage so, so quickly. And like I always say, it's telling these stories that keeps the dignity of that person alive. And who knows, maybe someday brings some closure for their life and for their family. Well, thanks for tuning in today, guys. That was a pretty interesting case and actually one I was not familiar with at all. A lot of twists and turns there, but like I said, this case still is unsolved. So I'm hoping we can continue to tell that story and hopefully shed a little light on what happened to Randy Wilson. Please remember to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform, as well as connect with me on social media. I know I made a few call-outs in this episode to get your opinions on things, so please send your opinions to me. You can find me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. New merch is up on the store. You can find the link and source materials for this episode at altitudecrime.com. And I have adjusted pricing a little bit, so you will see those prices have gone down. If you've looked in the last month or so, those have adjusted. So go get your super cool merch. And otherwise, I will talk to you guys next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 15, The Murder of Randy Wilson, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.